Hi, Professor Stanley here. Today's date is January the 1st of 2020, and today I'm going to prepare a lecture over Chapter 7 in your book, which is Self-Reflection and Self-Awareness. Now, I want you to know that I have already gone over most of these concepts in some sort of depth in several of the other lectures, but I decided to go ahead and put it together in one place again and to basically go through that chapter and define some of the definitions that you may come across. So let's get started. Okay, so as you know, probably through what we've already discussed, that the standard of practice for nursing care as developed by many, many organizations such as the ANA, the APNA, and the International Society of Psychiatric Mental Health Nurses reference the use of using yourself with a purpose as part of the psychiatric nursing process. So this is something that's very important, but if we're using ourself as a tool, the tool, just like any other tool, needs to be evaluated and refined and ensure that it is actually functioning at its optimal performance. As Benner declared, any nurse who is unfamiliar with both the patient and the tools required to provide patient care must be considered a novice and will remain a novice until these conditions change. But as they learn and as they progress, they become more adept at the use of self and the use of the tools in psychiatric nursing. Then they progress in their development from novice and hopefully eventually to expert as described by Benner. The practice of self-reflection is an important practice within the psychiatric nursing process and it provides an opportunity for the nurse to examine their actions and motivations and feelings and make sense of their actions within the context of their relationships with patients and be able to develop a true creativity in the nursing process. It is only through a process of self-reflection that someone can really grow in their nursing practice. Reflection in the content of context of learning is defined as thinking and feeling behaviors that are used to both create and clarify the meaning of an event. The process of reflection is of course subjective because it comes internally and it involves a conscious focus and attention to exploring and understanding the thoughts and the feelings that are the motivation of one's own conscious awareness. And there's a good description on page 113 of your book in table 7.1 where it talks about this process of reflection with stage one being the what. And under this it says, the what is being willing and open to perform a self-assessment, first of all, and then being willing and open to focus on your thoughts, beliefs, and feelings related to your experience and to struggle between the comfort and the discomfort that you may feel in various experiences that occur in patient interactions. And then think about a situation prior to having to deal with it so you prepare yourself mentally for what is to come. The second stage in the process of reflection is to say, so what? And this is a critical analysis and an exploration of alternatives that are possible, a determination of your strengths and the areas that you need to develop further, and a thinking about the situation in the moment using self-awareness, existing knowledge, and previously learned knowledge. And then stage three is a now what? And this is where judgment comes in, judgment concerning different or same actions in the future, making a decision as to whether or not you're going to react differently in the future or react the same in the future, 
a commitment to change if that is what is necessary, and a formulation of an action plan, and a thinking about the situation after it happens and processing it to make sense of it in order to improve future decision-making and future actions. Now, I want you to know that this is part of the reason that we are maintaining an art journal throughout the semester, because it is a reflective process as we go through these different topics that are going to be covered in this book. I realize that you do journaling in other classes. This is just another form of journaling and can actually take the form of being more emotionally relieving and more emotionally explorative than actual use of words for many people. So let's talk about self-awareness. Self-awareness is the capacity to actively identify, process, and collect information about one's internal mental state. It's really the part of us being truthful with ourselves about our true motivations and being willing to explore some things that might be difficult. And it includes, you know, looking at our public and private behaviors, our mental state, our general physical appearance, everything that has to go with like an awareness of self and what self is and how self is perceived by others. This awareness develops through examining one's own behaviors, but also through this process of receiving feedback about those behaviors. There is a model in the book called the Johari Window, which helps us to understand the different methods of increasing self-awareness, including feedback as well as self-disclosure, and it is presented in a diagram format in the book. According to the Johari window, the larger the area known to self and others, the more elements of self that are available through which to filter, interpret, and cope with the feedback provided by the environment. The environment includes direct verbal feedback. It also includes nonverbal feedback. So, for example, you know, we get feedback from others sometimes when they nod their head and tell us, you know, to go on or, or maybe when they turn away from us, they're telling us the opposite, right? But it also includes feedback received from one's own body in response to stress or changes in health. I frequently will ask patients to take a self-assessment of what they're feeling right then because they may not be aware of the tension that is evident within their body that, it, that indicates something is difficult to process for them, and they may not be aware of the cues that are leading up to perhaps an angry outburst or some other form of behavior. The blind area is reduced through the process of seeking and receiving feedback from others and the environment. Self-disclosure is a strategy to decrease the hidden area of self. Taking risks and new experiences provides the individual with an opportunity to, le- opportunity to learn what is previously not known. And this information about the self can be used to make improvements or to reflect or to even sometimes build self-esteem or other aspects of self. Now, the book at this point goes through several theoretical foundations, which we've already covered in the Chapter 4 content. It talks about Maslow and his hierarchy of needs. It also talks about William James and his principles of psychology with the definition of the self that includes both I and me and establishing the framework for modern psychology and psychiatry. I would encourage you to go read page 115 through page 118 because it does cover a lot of those theories and you can look at Freud and you can look at Erickson side by side. 
and the theoretical models, and it's a good thing to look at. So go take a look at that. And then also the nursing theories that we've already talked about somewhat, such as the ones by Pip Lau and by Ida Jean Orlando. I will say that the ones by Ida Jean Orlando are definitely worth taking a closer look at. I like that it says that although she says that although the nurse may be an expert on a particular physiological condition, the patient is the expert on their lived experiences of that condition. And that is consistent with the title model of mental health recovery and the 10 commitments of the title model. Of course, Orlando is the one who developed the process of validation, which can be illustrated through process recording or a written record of an interaction between two or more individuals, which is something we will be participating in this year and completing as part of our clinicals. Orlando suggested that perception is the primary element in the nurse's initial reactive response to the behavior of the patient. Now, perception includes the capacity of the five senses and is the primary cognitive process by which an individual collects sensory data and clusters it into a pattern. And I like what the book goes on to bring out in this segment that's by Shabri and Simmons using the term attentional attentional blindness to refer to the process of seeing what is important and paying relatively little attention to the rest of visual stimuli. So basically, you know, they really kind of show that sometimes while we may have a perception of something, it often fails to account for the entirety of the stimuli that is available and is definitely determined by our own previous thoughts and actions and perceptions of our environments. Cognition, or thought, is described as the more complex process of creating order and meaning from experience. Piaget's research in the area of cognitive development was based on evidence, extensive observational studies of children, and provided a template from which to compare functioning levels. He described two processes used by individuals in an attempt to adapt assimilate and accommodate new information. The first of these processes is called assimilation and is the process of using or transforming the environment so that it can be placed into pre-existing cognitive structures, the schema of memory as he described it. And then there's also the term he coined called accommodation, which is the process of changing cognitive structures to accept something from the environment. Now, both of these are, of course, used simultaneously and alternately throughout the life cycle. And so we're constantly, you know, taking out our previous experiences and using assimilation and accommodation to add the new experiences to it. The problem is, is that these still are very specific to an individual. And so that's why self-reflection can be important because we can pull this stuff out of our memory and try to identify our own personal biases that exist within our schema of memory. Now, emotions are our affective responses, our feelings, and they are believed to arise as a reaction to the meaning that we ascribe to something through perception and thoughts, and feelings are an integral element of self. So recognition of what one is feeling is highly relevant to nursing practice, and it can become, you know, where you shut off those feelings for a time when you are too bombarded. And so nurses have to be especially explorative in identifying their feelings and allowing themselves to actually feel at some point. Nurses who fail to engage in this process of self-reflection and emotionally explore, emotional exploration are ones who are prone to burnout, 
and can really struggle to maintain empathy in patient interactions. Now, there's another term I want you to be familiar with, and that is the term emotional intelligence. Separate from the kind of intelligence you might think that is measured by an IQ test, emotional intelligence is a measurement of intrapersonal phenomena which some people possess and which can be grown through a process of self-exploration and other means. Emotional intelligence refers to accurate conscious perceptions and monitoring of your own emotions, modification of your own emotions so that their expression is appropriate. So, for example, managing your own anger or anxiety or sustaining hope when you're in a difficult situation or in adversity. An accurate recognition of and response to emotions in others. And a skill in negotiating close relationships with others. People with emotional intelligence also have a capacity for channeling their emotional energy into goal achievement and being able to delay their own personal gratification for a time and divert their impulses so that they can achieve something that is more important. Now, let's go ahead and talk about the definition of empathy. Empathy can be defined as understanding and experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another from the other person's perspective being able to connect with them and feel what the other person is feeling. Now, I want to contrast that with sympathy, which is different. Sympathy is fundamentally an affirmation of separateness from another, patient, from another person's painful experience. It does not involve uh, experiencing what the other person is thinking or feeling. And although sympathy may motivate one to provide some assistance to someone else, it does not engage the core function of the nurse. While sympathy may result in pity or feeling sorry for another, the empathy allows you to actually place yourself in that person's position as if you were walking in their shoes. Now we're gonna quickly go through a few other sorts of terms and definitions. The first is that of self-concept, which it has to do with a person's body image, emotional status, role performance, life goals, sense of identity, spirituality, and relationship between the real self and the ideal self, how they wish they could be and how they actually are. Um, body image is another term we're going to go through. It can be described as how one views one's body in relation to one's perception of what would be the ideal body image or the ideal beautiful, valuable body. And you know what? Body image may actually be very different from reality. Like, for example, you know, often in anorexia, you may see a patient who believes that they're really, really large and fat, and you look at them and you see somebody who is actually very, very thin and gaunt and almost skeletal in nature. So body image does not actually have anything to do with the real self. It has to do with a person's perception. Another element associated with self-concept is that of body space and it is the amount of distance that provides a sense of comfort in social situations. Interestingly, this can vary greatly by culture. Some cultures maintain a great deal more body space than others, and some people have different distances that they consider comfortable. So it's important to understand you know, how a patient might feel about body space and be aware of your own feelings about that and set some parameters for what that is to look like. How one uses their body space is referred to as proxemics. Social roles is the next definition that I wanted to cover, and it contributes to the self-concept. Roles can be either chosen 
or they can be acquired without voluntary decision making. For example, you know, you might have a role of a student that is likely a choice, or you may have a social role that is not chosen, such as sometimes when people are diagnosed with a mental illness, they become part of a group that they did not choose to be a part of. So a social role that they didn't like has been forced upon them by necessity of illness. Self-esteem is another concept I wanted to go over and is the personal judgment of self-worth. It is based on an amount of overlap that exists between the ideal self, that is the self that one would like to be, and the true or actual self. It talks in the book about how self-concept sometimes contains elements that do not seem coherent and are discordant with the whole. For example, a school teacher who's really gentle with her little kindergarten students, but then she's vicious on the soccer field, or a brilliant financial manager who cannot write up a shopping list. So that's some example of how you have, may have uh, self-concepts that contain elements that do not seem coherent. And although self-concept is clearly rooted in the individual's past experiences and the appraisals of others, it does include a future orientation as well. A hopeful, positive self-perception may have as much influence on a patient's outcome as objectively positive data. It is worthwhile to note that big situations in someone's identity formation, such as death of a parent, dysfunctioning parenting, dysfunctional parenting, inadequate opportunities for education, and a low level of parental education all have been shown to have a negative impact on self-concept, stability of living environments, supportive parental fig- figures and mentors, as well as structured sports activities, and the opportunity to be praised for one's successes, support the development of a positive self-concept. A healthy self-concept reflects attitudes, emotions, and values that are realistically consistent with meaningful purpose in life and satisfying to the individual. Identifying your own self-concept as related to the reality, the real self versus the, the ideal self would be important thing to reflect upon as you develop your nursing self-concept. On page 124 of your book, it talks about the use of self and nursing practice and how caring for a patient with a mental illness can present the nurse with the experience of suffering that extends beyond the symptoms of the disease. When you look at things such as stigma, which we've already talked about, or discrimination that is associated with mental illness, it can have a profound impact on the patient and family, and it's considered to be a major factor in failure to seek treatment because people don't want other people to know that they're mentally ill. They don't want that stigma that's associated. So oftentimes they will be very late before they actually seek any help. The book goes on to talk about how Morris defined the nurse as the caretaker of suffering and contended that the suffering individual fluctuates between a state of enduring, which is experienced by suppressing painful emotions, and a state of emotional release, which is associated with active suffering. The efforts that people make to conceal the suffering is often motivated by the shame and stigma that is associated with mental illness. The nurse, however, is in a unique position to help the patient to explore the issues behind the creation of this facade and to really begin to process through the suffering that they are experiencing and can influence the resolution that the patient so desperately needs as they reconnect with the patient on a personal level, establishing an interpersonal bridge. 
It is crucial that the nurse be aware of the facade and sensitive to its purpose and create a time and a space for the patient to share his or her story and be particularly attuned to hearing that story. Now, of course, nurses may use a variety of strategies to connect with patients and promote the strength and hope they need to begin this hard work of recovery. But this must come from a place of authenticity within the nurse, which is the nurse's genuine awareness of personality, character, traits, and values, as well as demonstrated behavior that's consistent with this awareness, despite pressures to maybe behave otherwise. And the book discusses that nurses who are able to do this are authentic people who demonstrate congruence among ideals, values, and actions, and inherently are trustworthy. Two other definitions in the book that are related to this process are the definition of mindfulness, which is a form of self-awareness that may be described as a state of being in the present moment. A nurse who is authentic and who is using self in the nursing process will be mindful of their state of being present in the moment, not thinking about other things, but concentrating on what the patient is saying and having a genuine concern and genuine curiosity about the patient. And they're doing so without judgment. The mindful state is one in which the individual is aware of the current moment, but not reacting automatically. We are responsive and deliberately aware of the conscious decision to sit and to respond to the patient. So there is a mindfulness exercise in the book on box 7.3. We will also be going through some mindfulness exercises in class where we can practice what it means to be mindful. Presence refers to a condition in which all or one of one's all, which most or all of one's attention and energy is focused in the moment on the purpose of that moment. One is fully present and feels completely alive and engaged. Holistic practitioners suggest that the nurse can learn to achieve this state, regardless of the activity being undertaken, providing the opportunity for a patient and for self to experience this level of energy in any work or life experience. So those are our main concepts that we are looking at when we're talking about patient interactions that are full of self-reflection and self-awareness. And these are ideals that we wish to achieve, to be able to be present with our patients, to be able to be mindful of the moment and fully engaged in the moment and to draw out from the patient something that is very difficult to talk about because they know that we are fully present and we are authentically able to listen and to help them to work through their problem and to begin to engage again emotionally with the world and with another person. This process doesn't happen by accident. One does not automatically go into psychiatric nursing knowing how to be a good psych nurse. Many people through the course of their life have maybe developed some of the skills that might contribute to this, but it is only through the use of this continual process of self-reflection as we go back and we analyze our interactions with patients that we can refine and hone our skills so we become that person who is authentic and mindful and caring and able to help our patients to process through their moments of suffering and to be truly effective as psychiatric nurses. Thank you for listening.